The capital city of Israel, Yerushalayim, is constantly in our hearts and in our prayers, and in the news. Yerushalayim plays a central role politically, spiritually, culturally, and aspirationally for Jews all over the world. Today's guest, Blur Hassan Nahum, has a special relationship with the city, currently serving as its deputy mayor. She's also a candidate to lead the Jewish Agency, an important organization that cultivates and molds the relationship between Israeli and diaspora Jews. My name is Shira Kaplan, and I'd like to welcome you to the RZM Mizrahi Voices of Our Nation podcast, conducted by Rabbi Ari Rakov and Rabbi Daniel Alter. Flora, we are so excited to speak to you today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. In many ways, Flora, you represent the diversity of the Jewish people. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I'm from Gibraltar, so I'm both a Sephardi and a Brit at the same time. So, you know, Gibraltar is a British protectorate in southern Spain. Most of its Jewish community are a mixture of Spanish and Portuguese and Moroccan Jews, uh, northern Moroccan Spanish speaking Jews. Um, and I grew up in, interestingly, in, in a majority Sephardi community where, where that's what I knew. You know, I, we didn't have a lot of diversity within the community in terms of. Jews, but it was a very diverse community in general because Gibraltar is majority Catholic, there's Hindus, there's Muslims, and in general, because it's such a small place, everybody really um, got along and lived in, live in peace and coexistence. And the proof of that was that my father was elected as head of government, um, you know, for, for totaling, you know, almost 40 years. Um, and so I guess for a Jew in a minority community in general, uh, to be elected by the, 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 the main population shows you that there really is peace uh, and coexistence and a shared society there in the best way. So that's kind of like my, my template for how the world should be in terms of how people get along. Um, and yeah, and I had a wonderful childhood there. And then when I was 19, because there's no university in Gibraltar, uh, and because we're British, I went to the UK to study, and I studied law. Beautiful. And when did you move to Israel? So I, I studied there for many years, and then I met my husband, and, uh, you know, thank God, like me, he was a big Zionist. And when we were just married, about a year and a half later, we, we knew we wanted to make our lives here, build our family here. And... And we got married in 98 and we were planning on coming in 2000. And then the second intifada broke out and all our family were very much against it. But we thought to ourselves, if we're gonna wait for a good time to make Aliyah, there's never gonna be that time. So we're just gonna bite the bullet and come literally. And so we did. So in March, 2001, now almost 21 years that we've been in Israel and our four children Baruch Hashem were born in Israel. And so they're uh, Sabras, you know, they were they're natural born Israelis and uh, from, from immigrant parents. And, um, and it's been really a, a fantastic experience. I'm not saying it's not hard. I think Aliyah is very difficult um, to leave your families behind and to, to create a new, uh, you know, a new community. And sometimes when you, you think that there's no community really in Israel because everybody's Jewish and nobody bothers, but to really create your support system is a difficult thing. And uh, thank God, every day here is a gift and the miracle that is the state of Israel. I don't take it, any of it for granted. Amazing. So I imagine, um, you know, with your fascinating backgrounds um, and, you know, your aliyah to, to Israel, I imagine you didn't start 
as deputy mayor of Jerusalem. What did you do? <laughs> well, I didn't uh, even know how to say the word in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess walk us through just from the background when you uh, when you started in in um, from your Aliyah. What, yeah. what roles did you play so all, um, professionally? So first of all, what I want to say is that the reason I am a Zionist is very much uh, part partly due, or very much great partly due to my affiliation with B'nai Akiva. I uh, came to Israel when I was 14 for a family wedding, but when I got to really know Israel was when I was 16 and I went on B'nai Akiva Israel tour with the UK uh, pe people. Um, and it, it really made a Zionist out of me. I mean, I already loved Israel before, but getting to know the country the way that I did with B'nai Akiva and also the values of Torah Avoda, which of course you guys enshrined today in Mizrahi, and, and always have, um, is something that, I, that I'm that i very much, very much a part of my DNA. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why, why I'm here. Um, so I just want to say that. But basically, when I got to Israel, I, even though I'm a lawyer by profession, I kind of made the shift into the Jewish uh, world. And I was working in an organization in the UK called World Jewish Relief, which was basically a little bit like the JDC, like the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the joint, um, which is dealing with helping communities around the world, non-Israel, even though JDC has a huge operations in Israel and their operations in Israel are basically as the R&D arm of the Israeli government dealing with um, you know, the gaps in society. Um, but at the time I worked for an organization that was working very closely with JDC in Ukraine and before I made Aliyah, I'm very one of those very lucky people that I came to Israel with a job. And the job was that I was going to work at JDC because they'd met me through my work in the UK nonprofit. And so that was a real blessing that when we made Aliyah, I knew that at least me, my husband's a dentist, he had to take exams to requalify. But I knew even though I didn't speak five words of Hebrew, but I had a job at the joint because it was an American organization. I could work in English. And that was huge, a huge weight off our minds. And we had one income at least uh, early on. Um, and so I worked in nonprofit for many, many years uh, with the JDC. I set up all their non-US fundraising operations. Um, then after that, I worked for a wonderful organization called Tikva Children's Homes, uh, headquarters in New York, actually, which helps abandon and abuse Jewish children from the former Soviet Union, raises them in, 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 in children's homes and then brings them to Israel. So I did that for five years. And then, you know, what do you do when, when, you, when you already want, don't want to do something anymore? You become a consultant. So I became a consultant in, um, in communications and in helping organizations and companies um, put together and deliver effective messaging uh, the messaging to the world. And so I did that. I was a communications consultant for many years. And through that, I, I was already speaking more Hebrew at the time. You know, I did a master's in Hebrew University for conflict resolution, which comes in handy in this part of the world. And then a friend of mine said to me, you know, you're good at messaging, you're good at public speaking. There's a small, um, there's a small political, local government political party looking for help with messaging uh, for their new campaign, for the elections, for city council. Honestly, I never even thought about local government. And I didn't, you know, and, I, and then when I started to get into it, I realized that what affects your daily lives much more than anything is local government. It's schools that your kids go to, it's the buses that you get on public transport, it's your public spaces and what they look like. 
it's the streets and how clean they are. And and I didn't really, you know, you, in, in the press, you just hear about national politics. But in fact, what, what affects your daily life much more than anything is, 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 is the local stuff going on. And once I understood that I wanted to be a part of that, I ran for city hall. I became a city council member in 2016. Again, my biggest fear at this point was like, oh my God, making a speech in Hebrew. Because, you know, even though I'd had several jobs and I'd been in the country already for, when I got into politics, I'd already been in the country for 12 years, 13 years, but still I, it, it was daunting to make a speech. One, one thing is ordering a salad, you know, and the other thing is getting up in front of an audience of Israelis and trying to create, get them to vote for you. And so um, going through all that, of course, makes your Hebrew better. It's, it's like when you jump into the pool and then you learn how to swim. And so I started helping this this a small political party. I ran for City Hall. I got in 2016 and then I ran again. Um, and the second time I ran, uh, I ran with Zev Elkin. I was his running mate. He's a Likud minister. And he was looking for kind of a woman for, for his, for his uh, running mate. And, and of course, you know, Jerusalem is a very Anglo community. So I could bring in the Anglo vote. That was the idea and I did, but he lost. <laughs> and then in the second round, it's very complicated in this country, elections and voting. You, they like to vote a lot here. Second round of elections, I, I, I basically picked pick the winning horse, Moshe Leon, who's also a friend of mine. And, um, and then when, when he won, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, look, I speak English. I speak Spanish. I come from a diverse background. I understand the diaspora. It was my home. I want to I wanna do foreign relations for the city. And so I have the foreign relations portfolio, economic development, because I wanted a real operational part of my portfolio to be able to bring investments to the city and tourism, which is a huge part of our economy. And so I've had that role now for three years and I'm, I, I really, I, I wake up and I pinch myself, what did I do to be able to represent not just the capital city of the state of Israel, but the heart and soul and the capital city of the Jewish people and very cognizant of that and that I'm not just representing the people who pay city taxes, I'm also representing the entire Jewish world that sees Jerusalem as its heart and its soul and the center of our people. And, I, and that's why I, I relish in this role um, that I can represent them from the perspective that I came from the diaspora. And so it's really a blessing. What, what a story. <laughs> what a story. So we have a lot to talk about as um, a communications expert and messaging expert for different entities in Israel. What, what is the message and vision uh, for the city of Jerusalem, you know, as your role of deputy mayor um, and, you know, past three years and moving forward? You know, what is your vision? Well, my vision is uh, a vision that's been around for quite a while, uh, and that is King David's vision. King David picked Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago as the capital of his kingdom, even though he's from Judah. So King David came from Judah. What's the capital of Judah? Hebron. But instead of setting up capital in his hometown, let's say it like this, he chose Jerusalem. And the reason he chose Jerusalem, amongst other things, is because Jerusalem at this point did not belong to any one tribe, which is the meaning of Jerusalem. And the DNA of Jerusalem is that it's home to all the tribes. And I translate this in the modern era is, it's home to every Jew. And, and my vision and my mission 
is for every Jew to see themselves in Jerusalem. I don't care where you're from or what your leanings are, political, religious, it doesn't matter. Every Jew has to feel at home in Jerusalem. And so that's why we have to keep Jerusalem diverse and we have to keep Jerusalem inclusive. And we have to keep Jerusalem as a place that is not hostile to anybody, but bringing everybody in. The Kirov, the center of Kirov in the world should be Jerusalem. And that's my, like I said, it's not, I don't own this vision. It's King David's vision. I'm trying to give it a modern take. Um, and that's Jerusalem. And that's what I see here. So I, I suppose building on that um, beautiful vision of unity. So one of your portfolios is to create an embassy row in Jerusalem. Has there been any progress in that area? Um, what countries ah, are you expecting to, uh, it's to jump on board? Yes, it is difficult. Look, we have the United States was the biggest diplomatic victory, I think, in terms of the, the moving of the embassy. And they are planning. I mean, they've already got it here and I'm helping them through the process, but they are planning a... Um, they are planning a huge complex, actually very near from where I live, in Arnona, um, the corner of Dera Hebron, which is a very central kind of city artery, and Arnona. And my vision was, there's a lot of land there, that we, the, 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 the embassy of the US is and will be the biggest embassy. I mean, even if Brazil and China move here, the US will still be the biggest embassy. And so using the US embassy as an anchor, um, bringing to that neighborhood the other smaller embassies that have already moved and Bezrat Hashem, the embassies that will move, being optimistic for the future. And so I've proposed this to the city planners. Uh, you know, everything in Jerusalem is a very difficult thing to, to get everybody to agree on something, but they do understand the, um, the logic of my vision. And, uh, and there's, there's going to be hotel buildings around there. And so it really makes a lot of sense that we build an embassy district, like in many, many uh, cities, capital cities around the world. And this is something I'm advancing. Like I said, at the moment, the main advance is the United uh, States embassy, but more hotels and office spaces will be going on. So I hope, even if I don't do it as a huge kind of operational move, that I will encourage the smaller embassies to move to that neighborhood because it would make a lot of sense in terms of planning. Uh, sounds impre impressive, uh, sounds complicated. And I, I suppose one of the uh, questions that, that we had is we know from the news and media, President Biden um, and the United States have expressed interest in establishing a consulate in Jerusalem for the Palestinians. Uh, of course, the Israeli government um, as are you, uh, um, as opposed to this move. Can you just yeah. explain to us, give us some background on that um, so we can understand sure. more where you're coming from on that. So basically, um, there is no precedent anywhere around the world for a country, never mind the US, there's no precedent for the US either, to have a consulate for a different people in the same city as the embassy that they have created. Now, when the embassy was in Tel Aviv, they had a very good excuse. Our consulate is in Jerusalem. There's a few consulates in Jerusalem. The British, for example, have a consulate in Jerusalem, but they have the embassy in Tel Aviv. But once you've made that move and you have an embassy here in the capital city that finally has recognized what we all know, and that is that Jerusalem is the capital city of the state of Israel. 
eternal capital city. In I mean, whoever doesn't understand yet that in whatever peace deal may come in the future, Jerusalem will remain the eternal capital city of the Jewish people doesn't understand what's going on here. And so to build a consulate in a city with an embassy is already, first of all, an unprecedented move. And the US hasn't done it anywhere, not in Tibet and not in other conflict zones or areas of controversy, let's say. Nowhere has the US done this, even when they recognize the cause of another people within the framework of the country that they're in. Why start here? And aren't you putting, aren't you basically already doing the, the negotiations for the Israelis and the Palestinians when you're already creating facts on the ground that you can't reverse? It doesn't make any sense diplomatically. It doesn't make any self sense from a peace building perspective. And it doesn't make any sense on, on a state level. And so I think that it's something that, uh, that, that, that it's, it's nothing that the American uh, government should, should, should point out as the hill that they want to die on, because it really is a, a very dangerous precedent that they're setting. And, and, and they haven't done it anywhere else. Why start here? Why start here? Once we're talking about, you know, the Amer Americans, let, let, I'd like to shift now to an important diaspora question. Mm -hmm. So you are one of the final candidates um, to run the Jewish agency. Before we get into that, can you just give our listeners a short description of the description of the Jewish agency and the role it plays? Sure. So the Jewish agency is the organization that was essentially the state, the, the government of the state of Israel before the establishment of the state of Israel. That's how organized Jewish people are. We had a government before we had a state. Um, and so that was the Jewish agency. It was charged as the executive arm of the Zionist uh, the, the World Zionist Congress, to, in order to um, be able to create the uh, tools a state needs to be created and to manage, like I said, the pre-state government of the Jewish people in the state of Israel, in, in what then was British mandated Palestine. Now, once the, once the, the 1948 and the Declaration of Independence and we had our state, um, there was a question, what should the Jewish agency now be or do when we now have a government, we now have a country? And so the Jewish agency went into actually a very interesting and state building role, and that is bringing and absorbing the immigrants. The state of Israel doubled and tripled and quadrupled in, in, in its population in, in a few decades. Again, unprecedented for any country to be able to manage that. And that was what they were tasked with. They were tasked with immigration and, um, and absorption. And they brought millions of people to this country that today is, of course, the population of the state of Israel. And then about 15 years ago, when Natan Sharansky, um, of course, a, a Jewish hero, um, was the chairman of the Jewish agency, he said, there's another challenge the Jewish people are facing. Um, and the challenge of the day is the Israel diaspora relationship, especially uh, forging stronger Jewish identity amongst uh, diaspora Jewry and its connection to the state of Israel. And so today the Jewish agency does that and Aliyah, and those are its main, its main um, operational uh, missions. And of course, you know, it, it's such a historic organization 
a historic organization that has reinvented itself in order to meet the needs of the day of Israel and the Jewish people. It would be an incredible privilege for me, who had, comes from the diaspora, was a new immigrant, and today is an Israeli politician. Uh, and today, to be able to represent my people um, would be an incredible honor. And I believe also uh, to be the first woman to do this, because there's 92 years, there's never been a woman uh, to, to um, head the Jewish agency. And on top of that, the first Sephardi to do this, because there's never been a Sephardi, I think it's an important message to say the Jewish people are not homogeneous. The Jewish people are heterogeneous, and that is the beauty of the diversity of the Jewish people. And I'm not saying I should get the job because I'm a woman or because I'm Sephardi. Um, and there are many women who have uh, presented their candidacy. So the excuse of, oh, not enough women apply does not hold water anymore. Six out of these, five or six out of the nine candidates are women. There's majority women. There's no reason that this time we shouldn't uh, make an effort uh, uh, to, to meet the needs, to reflect society that you're purporting to lead and to reflect the beauty and the different colors and flavors that is the Jewish people. That's great. And Flora, I think the, the points you made are very important. I think, you know, the opportunity to have a woman running the agency, the, the opportunity to have someone of Sephardic descent running the agency, I, I think are very important points, especially, you know, when we think of you as a potential candidate for this job, I, I think you have developed a reputation as someone who has the ability to work with diverse groups, which I think is a really important conversation we don't hear enough of when we talk about diaspora Jewry. We often yes. hear about diaspora Jewry as if it's a monolith, when in reality, it, it's just as diverse as honestly, the citizens of the state of Israel. Absolutely. So I, I'm probably simplifying somewhat, but I'd like to break down diaspora, specifically United States into four generalized categories, the Haredi community, Dati Lumi community, liberal movements and unaffiliated. And let's talk about each one a little bit. So let's start maybe with the Haredi community outside of Israel, probably the one that we talk about the least when we talk about the Jewish agency. As yeah. deputy mayor, you interact regularly with this community. As a community that doesn't define themselves technically as Zionists, do you have thoughts about relationships between the Haredi community and the diaspora and the Jewish agency? Absolutely. First of all, you're quite right that it's uh, when people think of the diaspora, they don't think about the Haredi in the diaspora, but it's actually the fastest growing community in the diaspora is, is the Haredi or Hardali, as we call them, uh, community. Um, and it's very interesting you asked me that question that they don't see themselves as Zionists, because when I did my master's, my thesis was actually about the Zionist character of the Haredi community. And I'll explain what I mean. Basically, I, my contention is that they are Zionists. They just don't like using the word. What do I mean by Zionists? They want to be here. They're happy there's a state. They've learned to act and operate within the state. And they're not anti-Zionist, not anymore. Apart from the Meshugaim or the Maturakata, we don't call, you know, we don't, I, I'm talking about the mainstream Haredim. And the younger generations of Haredim are less Yiddish speaking, more Hebrew speaking, more affiliated to Israel. And so that's the way that it's going. So I don't like to say that they're non-Zionist, even though they wouldn't call themselves Zionists. But actually, you know, the fact that they're now in the World Zionist Congress, I think it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible thing because these are non, now they've had to admit that they're Zionists in order to be in the World Zionist Congress. Um, 
So I think it's a very fascinating community and quite rightly, I interact with this community daily because half of my city council is Haredi. Um, and it's not because they're half of the city, it's because they vote in double the numbers than the rest of us, because they're the only strategic voters that exist in the state of Israel. The rabbis say vote for A, B, and C. They don't even know who they're voting for, they'll go and they vote, because they believe in, they believe in their uh, political power as, strategic, as a strategic block, very, very smart. And so they know how to operate politics better than most people in this country. Uh, and City Hall, of course, they hold a myriad of of portfolios, not to do with Haredism. The guy who holds a transport portfolio is Haredi. He's my neighbor in, 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 in my office. So I deal with him about buses for people. You know, so Haredi people are, are, are very, the, the ones in office are very dedicated. Most of them are very, you can look, you can say a lot of, against them, but I'm actually a big fan of, um, of how smart they are politically. Um, and, and, uh, and how most of the time when I go to them for things that have nothing to do with their communities, they respond. And when they need stuff that I'm in charge of for their communities, of course I respond. And that, I mean, you know, not, 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 to, not, to, not to say that we don't argue. There's a lot of things we argue about. But ultimately, the day-to-day -day relationship is very healthy and very productive. And they are smart politicians who, 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 uh, who, who in general serve most populations in the city. Um, and of course, for me, as the portfolio holder of economic development, a big part of the population that I want to empower and I want to train uh, and I want to develop the human capital because we need it in the city is the Haredi population. So I, for example, have a whole program that I created for women in high tech. Haredi women are a huge chunk of my program. Haredi women are in high tech. I want them to advance to the best jobs. And so they are in high tech with me the way that secular women and national religious women and Arab women. I'm advancing women in the city because I'm developing human capital in the city. And the Haredim are a huge chunk of that human capital. With men, I'm producing, I'm bringing high tech to the city and I want Haredi men to, to, to be engineers and, and, and to you know, develop that human capital to have great jobs. Many of the young Haredim don't want to live in abject poverty anymore. And the truth is, this is where the diaspora Haredi community can be very useful because they look, the ones here look at their peers in New York and they say, hey, they're working. You don't need to spend a life of Kolel all day long. You can do both. Look at how our counterparts in America and in other parts of the world also work. They're not less Haredi than we are and they're working. So I think it's actually a very productive relationship to be able to have the diaspora Haredi community and the local Haredi community interact and share um, experiences. So that's kind of my thoughts about the Haredi community. I think that's great. And I think there are things that you bring to the table that, you know, many others wouldn't necessarily. Let's move to a, a, an opposite extreme and talk a little bit about the liberal movements. And I think there are really two very separate challenges in this arena. Let's maybe focus on them one by one. Let me start with the political side of things, which probably is uh, ironically the less controversial one right now. Um, as someone who affiliates with the Likud, much of the liberal Jewish community, I think would like to see a much more progress towards a two-state solution, probably better identifies with a political party like Meretz or maybe Labor. Um, Likud is not running to institute a two-state solution. Do you have any thoughts on this gap and how we bridge this gap or even begin to discuss this issue? That's a good question. Look, I, I'm I, the Likud. You have to understand, uh, Likud is a party that is right-wing liberal. Okay, 
Let's start with that. Likud is right liberal. That was Jabotinsky, and that was Menachem Begin. Um, and, and even though the Likud has in the last few years made kind of a pact with the Haredi parties, the Likud is a liberal party. So I want to just leave that there and park it for a second, because people really forget um, that that is what the Likud stands for. And I'm talking about liberal economic policies. And I'm also talking about liberal policies in terms of every other part of society. We are a liberal party. Um, and so I leave that there for a second. In terms of the two-state solution, look, <laughs> it's not like we haven't tried. You know, I think that that's what people don't seem to understand. And, you know, Jews, we're very good Jews at doing the mea culpa thing, you know, looking in the mirror, it's all our fault. It's all our fault. We should have, we have out every government. First of all, let's not forget that four of the five peace deals being done with the Arab world was done by the Likud party. Okay. Egypt, Jordan, uh, the UAE, Morocco, Sudan, five out of six, no, sorry, Jordan wasn't the liquid party, everything else has been the liquid party. So if anybody can make peace, it's actually the right wing, because the left wing will all support. And so let's not forget, that's our history. Menachem Begin, you can't get more liquid than him, you know, made peace with Egypt, that was the first peace ever made. So I don't agree with this dichotomy that the Likud, it does not support peace with the Arab world. Netanyahu just brought peace with four Arab countries, and most people want to forget about it, but that's the fact. Firstly. Secondly, if we don't have peace, it's not because we haven't tried, and it's not because we don't want it. If we don't have peace, it's because the Arab leadership, the Palestinian leadership, either does not want it or can't deliver it. Because Israel has always stretched out its hand in peace. And I, as the person who created the UA Israel Business Council and the Gulf Israel Women's Forum, want peace and coexistence more than anybody. But I'm also not suicidal. And I'm not going to hand over, um, you know, land for nothing. And I believe with Jabotinsky's vision and Bibi Netanyahu's execution of that vision, that we have to have strength. And from strength comes peace and not from weakness. And that, la and that we need peace for peace and not land for peace when we're going to get rockets coming and flying from Gaza, from Gaza. And so I believe me, I am, there's no more Rodefet Shalom than me, but I'm realistic and I understand what's going on around us. And I understand that peace from a point of strength is a sustainable and long lasting peace. And so what I am doing as a proudly Kudnik is I'm reaching to the other side and building bridges with the Arab communities, both in Jerusalem and in the Gulf, um, in order to create the infrastructure for peace. Because what we know from other peace deals and what we know from Oslo is that you can sign all the wonderful peace deals on the top, but if people still hate each other, it's no good. And so I'm building peace from the bottom up through my day-to-day -day encounters with the Arabs of my city, which I consider very much my constituents, building opportunity for them, bringing quality employment for them, developing parks for them, high tech and green parks and everything else. And that's how we build peace, from the bottom up and not only from the top down, because that's not real, it's not warm and it's not sustainable. So that, that's basically where I stand on that. I think that's a very realistic, but very, um, I think aspirational vision. So we're excited by that. 
The, the second issue in some ways is the more complex and more tense issue right now. And that's, you know, religious issues, religious pluralism issues. You know, I'll, I'll give you one example. Maybe we can start talking about this one is sort of the, the Kotel agreement. So just recently, last few days, I think Rabbi Kanievsky and Rabbi Edelstein have come up very strongly against this agreement. Any thoughts on what that looks like moving forward on this? Let me just, let me just put it this way, okay? Like I said before, my vision is for Jerusalem to be every Jew's home and place they feel at home. The Jewish people is not monolithic and it never has been. And so we have to make an effort for everybody to be inclusive of everybody else. Now, I think that there were a lot of compromises being made on both sides, but that's the way we have to go. We have to go to a way of compromise where everybody says, you know what, I'm going to give a little so that my fellow Jew feels comfortable. If everybody does that, then we'll, we'll come up with a deal. And the Haredim were almost there. I think what's happening today is they've politicized it. They've politicized it. It's not about religion anymore. Look, in the Bet HaMikdash, there was a place where non-Jews could go and pray. How much more should we make some space for our own brethren? So don't give me halachic excuses because they don't wash when you look back at our history as a people and our evolution as a people. The call of the hour is achdut, it's unity. It's sinat chinam is why we lost the temple and people have forgotten this. So I don't care where the sinat chinam is coming from because there are extremists on all sides. We have to make an effort to make a compromise that everybody can live with. And as somebody who's been to that prayer section many times, most of my friends with the team Leumim do their bar mitzvahs there. Why? Because the women, the mothers don't want to be peering over a wall to see their son put on his tefillin. You know, so let's be realistic here. We're talking about a very diverse cross-section of people, you know, that, that will make good use of that. Now, I, I do agree that no part of the wall should be, you know, farmed out to any denominations. I'm not asking for a Sephardi section of the wall. So I don't think any part of the wall should belong to the, the reform or the liberal or the ultra or the ultra orthodox. We, this is not this is not real estate that we should be handing out in a tender. This is an area that should be actually sectioned for a more inclusive type of prayer. And I think that if we can all give a little of where our positions are, and I say this as a religious woman. This is the call of the hour, achdut, and inclusion, and to bring all the different pieces of Am Israel to our city. Because we can't on the one hand say, you're not welcome, and on the other hand say, why do they criticize us? Well, why do you think? Because you're not making them feel at home. So we can't have it both ways. And I think that we have to head towards a compromise the way that it was on the table, and it was a shame we didn't take it when we did. Um, and I think that um, I'm, I'm part of many people in the Likud who thinks that we should move forward. Bibi Netanyahu did at the time, um, and, and we, that's where we should be going. Okay, that's great. And I, I think that, to me, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, going to, moving to our third category of Jews, that's the unaffiliated, who really are a different group. Um, they have largely chosen to be unaffiliated, despite the plethora of opportunities that exist. Do you see a role for Israel that Israel can play in trying to reach out and, you know, connect to the masses of unaffiliated Jews in, in America? Absolutely. I mean, that's what the Jewish agency is, uh, is kind of charged to do, 
to bring in the unaffiliated and to create a sense of identity. Look, I think I have a few ideas. Um, and I think that, of course, incredible organizations like, uh, you know, Birthright and Massa have done such a good job in bringing in unaffiliated people in throughout the years. And, but I think that, I think that the, that, that the main problem is that people don't know their own, their own history. You know, let's start with that. You know, unaffiliated Jews don't understand how awesome it is to be part of the Jewish people. You know, they don't understand our heritage. They don't understand that we come from the greatest man that ever lived, Abraham, who is the forefather of the three major monotheistic religions in the world, spanning billions of people in the world. Okay? He's our grandfather. Um, people don't understand that Moses was one of the best leaders that ever lived. I'm talking about our own kids, our own kids. You know, the story of the Jewish people is the most fascinating, incredible story of human beings on earth. In terms of we're the oldest people, we are the people who've survived when we shouldn't have. We are an ancient, almost an, an anomaly. And so looking into what's made us this, um, I think is incredible. Now, we weren't born great. The greatness comes from our algorithm, which is the Torah, of course, um, and, and, and how that's a template for life that has evolved with time in an incredible way that is still so much more relevant today, so much more relevant today. Shabbat is in an era of technology that even was 200 years ago, think about it. So, um, so I, I just would love to be able to instill a sense of pride and knowledge and just, you know, if we could have like a 20 season Game of Thrones show about the Jewish people, everybody would go, whoa, I'm so happy to be Jewish. <laughs> and that's what we should be going, by the way. That's how we should be educating our kids. It's the only way we can educate them anymore. And we need to flip the switch from the classroom to a more experiential education system to a more screen driven. I hate to say it, but that's just the way the world is. Like I said, a 20 season Game of Thrones type, the Jews would be fascinating. Right, and that's a great idea. We have to find some television producers. <laughs> Um, I know people find it. I know people Ms. Rahi, Ms. Rahi, Game of Thrones. And, uh, <laughs> Let's the do brand, it. Right. The brand is born. <laughs> right. That's great. So let me end with one last uh, question, and that's getting to our community, the Dati Lumi community. You know, it's interesting. Um, Rabbi Rakev and myself a few weeks ago were at a meeting with somebody from the, the, um, from the Sochnut, uh, with a bunch of communal leaders who, and he asked them, he said like, what can we do for the Datilumi community? Um, and the answer wasn't so clear, honestly, because I feel like the Datilumi Lumi community definitely in central areas in the United States is very strong right now. Um, we have strong infrastructure. Um, one thing that we are interested, very interested in is sort of some of the things that relate to us in Israel. Um, so maybe even starting with some of those questions, um, I know that, you know, we're, we've been fascinated by, by the work Matan Kahana is doing. Um, and in the Datilumini community itself, there's all types of opinions on this question. I'd like to get your thoughts, you know, in terms of some of the reforms he's, he's making in, in the chief rabbinate, like on Kashrut and the, the Gerut work he's working on. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, 
you know, some of those things. Absolutely. Well, I actually was involved many years ago with um, with the Kashrut stuff, um, and you know, with the Zohar Kashrut, etc. Look, I believe again. I want to go back to my liberal economic liberal values of free markets. Kashrut should be a free market, the way that it is in America. How many Kashrut do you have, Daniel? Two hundred, a hundred. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anybody's saying you're not eating kosher? You choose. Right. What's the difference? Why do we have government? This is all about big government, okay? I want to go back to that. Religion has been co-opted as a government mafia. And so I'm against any mafia. Any I'm against any, um, how do you call it? Um, monopoly. Monopoly. Any cartel. Okay, cartel. That's the word. I'm against any monopoly. Kashrut cannot be a monopoly. Because what happens in a monopoly? Service goes down. Corruption breeds and that's what happened with kashrut i am in charge of tourism for the city you speak to the average restaurant owner two years ago and they would be like the meshkichim don't show up i could be selling pork 23 hours a day and they come for half an hour a day they take all our food they take our money and we have to pay twice now does that sound like this is you know enhancing Kashrut? No, it doesn't. It's just government inefficiency. Government should not be involved in the day-to-day -day running of these things. So I'm coming from it from a liberal economic perspective that we cannot have the state monopolizing religious services because the services go down and corruption breeds. So from that perspective, I think what Matan Kahana is doing is great. And it's about time, by the way. And I was involved in protests. Honestly, you know, Tsohar, when they did their kashrut, you know how Tsohar does do weddings. Tsohar is Dati Leumi, you know, an incredible clean organization that gets a lot of support from the Dati Leumi community. They've been doing kashrut now. I was involved with that years ago. And so I'm in favor. I think he's doing the right thing. Um, and again, it's about breaking monopolies and breaking cartels. And that's what it's about. It's not about religion. And the way that you you have 200 kashruyot over there in America, and nobody's saying you're not kosher and you want to bring the downfall of the Jewish people. Again, this is, this is politicizing the religion. The minute you politicize religion, we go to a very dangerous place. Flora, this has been a fascinating conversation. We really want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, and we look forward to watching you and the work you continue to do to strengthen Am Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael. Thank you so much. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. And thank you, Ms. Rachi, for the work you do to keep that connection, to strengthen those bonds, and to create an incredible cadre of Jewish leaders, because that's really what you do. Thank you so much, Rabbis Rokov and Alter, and I hope to see you in the Holy Land very soon. Thank you so much for joining us for the Religious Zionists of America Mizrahi Voices of Our Nation podcast. Stay tuned for more stories centered on Jewish identity and Jewish ideas. Tell us your story at voices at rza.org. Special thanks to Fleur Hassan Nahum and Rabbi Daniel Alter for helping to make this episode possible.